everyone. Today we're talking to Chris Savalone, who's worked as a designer for some of the best RPGs of the last two decades, including Planescape Torment, Fallout New Vegas, Fallout 2, Neverwinter Nights 2, Knights of the Old Republic 2, Wasteland 2, and he's currently contributing to Torment Tides of Numenera. I didn't actually remember to ask him why he's worked on so many games with two in the title, but that's life. So uh, I always wanted to be a player uh, for role-playing games. Like, uh, you know, I wanted to make my character. I wanted to go on adventures the first time, like, I got exposed to Dungeons & Dragons. I thought it was the coolest thing ever. It was, you know, basically make-believe, but it had rules, which made made it sort of feel more fair to me. However, yeah. the, the problem was, uh, and, and this is going to transition to the game design answer, no one would ever be the game master. So that means I had this huge frustration where I'm like, okay, well, I, you know, I, I want to go on these cool adventures. Like, you know, how, you know, how can I, vibe, you know, is there some way to solve this? And it turned out the only way to really do it was to actually be like a dungeon master or a game master for my friends and over the years, that was kind of my role again and again and again. And I, I certainly enjoyed doing it. And, there, and there's really there's really no thrill that compares to running a really good game session where all the players get really excited and they you know they think you know you did a good job. And you're like, wow, you know what I, you know I, I you know I really did good there. I feel pretty pretty proud of myself. And um, but over the years, like all this uh, design work for just the pen and paper games built up. And I'm like, wow, I got stacks and stacks of, you know, dungeons and, you know, modules and inventory items, like, you know, from, you know, the our superhero games to Warhammer to D&D. Like, it's kind of a waste to let all this stuff lie around. I feel like I've, you know, been wasting my life, which I'm, you know, sure a number of people would have agreed with at the time. But then I'm like, okay, well, I'll try and submit some of this stuff. And then I, and, and then I did, um, uh, this company called Champions took pity on me because they had an aggressive release schedule. And also I'd sent them like 30 or 40 submissions, it felt like. And they were like, okay, well, maybe we can just, you know, sort of kill two birds with one stone and shut this guy up and also solve our portfolio problem. And we'll, we'll publish one of his works. And then from there, I just, uh, you know, got the, got the publishing gig and then I got more and more work and then went on to Interplay. But mostly, I guess, the reason I got into game design was largely because of lazy players and I wanted to be a player, so I did the next right. best thing. So, the, the, I mean, when, when you did that, uh, did you discover that you enjoyed, you know, being the kind of the, the creator, the dungeon master more than, more than being a player? Or was it still just that you wanted to actually play the games and, that you kind of ended up doing that. You know, it was equally fun. It's just that I had such such rare opportunities to be a player. Um, that was kind of the thing. So it was a lot easier to to organize my own games and get more momentum that way. Uh, but I, I I enjoyed being on both sides of the game master screen. Alrighty. Um. So, I mean, how long have you been in the industry now, games design? About about a decade. Oh God. Uh, okay, so don't don't laugh. Uh, but the uh, so I, I think it's been over twenty years in computer game design, and then before that, I was doing pen and paper game design for I, I'm going to guess about five years. So it's been a really long time, and uh, 
all my friends uh, and, and my girlfriend tease me about my age all the time. But you know what? I spent most of my life doing what I love, so I, I'm, I'm more than happy about it. Right, okay. So, and, and how, how do you think that the industry has changed um, during the time that you've been in it? You know, I think it's changed dramatically, obviously, in terms of technology and interface and certain features that uh, cater to the player in, in good ways and bad ways. Uh, at the same time, I think there's other things that haven't fundamentally changed, like the basic essence of what an RPG is, I don't think has really changed at all. I think it's been given new forms of expression, but the, the, spine, of, the spine of it is still there. Um, right. But yeah, actually, the, I think the biggest adjustment is just uh, the sheer size of teams, um, which right. actually seems to be going through a downsurge now. Now that you know you could actually you know get access to Unity, and uh, you know you have your own digital distribution, so actually you're able to create games again with smaller teams and actually get it out there without needing a publisher, which I think is fantastic. Seeing seeing that be an option as you know reminds me of like when I first started out and and that, yeah. that's sort of that's sort of gratifying so have you got any insights as to where the industry is going at the moment um I actually uh I do not I know there's been a lot of talk about uh you know uh virtual reality um I I would definitely like to see more uh crowdfunded projects I think it's been a yeah great fantastic thing that you know the players can directly pay for entertainment they want and they can also contribute as much as they want to get you know extras that would be a little bit harder in the old traditional publisher model to satisfy everybody so i seeing that sort of customization for how you want your game experience delivered to you i think is kind of cool uh, but uh in terms of future of the industry i I'm just waiting for the Star Trek holodeck to show up because that's yeah. going to be the, <laughs> exactly. the end result. I'm just it's it's just a series of steps. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, poss- possibly in our lifetime, I suppose. Um, you know what? Yeah. It better be because I mean that'd be frustrating. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Um, yeah, I mean, I mean, Kickstarter. The, 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 I mean, there's supposedly a, a lot more cynicism about Kickstarter these days. But um, you know, I've, I've just took a look now at In Exile because they they just launched um, they Kickstarter Barstail yeah, Bar- Tale Bar- Bar- Four, and it's doing really well. Yeah, it's doing really well. I mean, they've got thirty, they've got a, a month to go, and they're pretty much they've pretty much hit the goal already. So, so it, I mean, maybe it's a case of people trust them because they've they've produced. They they've produced a good game. It looks like they're going to produce another one, and people have thought, well, they they they're coming up with the goods, so why not? Yeah, and Exile's got that uh, that great track record going, and they certainly uh, they certainly know those properties also, and it comes through like in all their updates, it comes through in the finished product. I, they're doing a good job, and also I think uh, they. I mean, it's not only the the game development there, but I think that. In Exile, and you know, especially uh, Brian Fargo, really know how to communicate with the community. Like Brian's very approachable, and he's really he's really active. He answers people's questions. He's I don't he just feels a, you know, kind of down to earth. Um, yeah. So I mean that's that's kind of a, I think is also a big push because I think players enjoy seeing that kind of you know human face on the game as well. So I think it works out pretty well for Exile. But yeah, I'm really excited about Bar's Tale Four. Uh, it's, this isn't common knowledge, but uh, you know, Bard's Tale was actually the reason that I really jumped into computer games because that was the first opportunity I realized I could be a player again because there was right. a virtual GM and I'm like, oh my god! Like I saw it playing on my friend's Commodore 64 and I'm like, what is that? He goes, oh, it's Bard's Tale. And I'm like, 
you mean I could just make my own party and go on an adventure? It's like, yeah. And then you know, the rest was just, you know, RPG after RPG after RPG. But, yeah, I did so. I owe Brian Fargo for that. I owe Interplay for that. So thank, thank you, Brian. <laughs> so um, just talking about the games that you've, you've worked on, are there any that have particularly stood out as being uh, really enjoyable projects to work on? They what would you say that you've enjoyed most, for example? Um, I, you know, each of them carried their own stress and challenges. Uh, it all depends, actually, on on the project. Um, I think, uh, but to give a more specific answer, um, I really enjoyed uh, working on Fallout 2 because of the RPG mechanics that I think, uh, you know, Tim Kane and Leonard and Jason at all and, and Chris Taylor all helped sort of establish with the Fallout with Fallout One, like uh, you know the whole way of you know the branching quest structure where the different character archetypes could solve each quest in a different way. I thought was awesome, and being able to actually design quests that way was cool. And then the the whole way they set up dialogue was a breath of fresh air. I'm like, oh my god, stats can modify your responses. That's crazy. Oh my god, look what a yeah. stupid character says. Oh my god, I'm a super smart guy. Look what I said. It's I loved I loved writing that because you to include all sorts of like little Easter eggs in there too for people that had chosen certain builds. Um, yeah. So yeah, I really enjoyed that. Uh, Planescape uh, was great. Um, I that you know it was a lot of hours, <laughs> and sometimes <laughs> those hours were the same time as Fallout Two. But Planescape was kind of like the huge like I hesitate to say dumping ground, but like every single idea that I had for a fantasy you know quest or character, I was able to dump into that game, and I had you know so many files built up that I'm like, all right, I'm just you know Planescape allows me to do all these things thank god so i'm just gonna you know sort of like take all that stuff that i accumulated and sort of give it a voice which was which was pretty great i really enjoyed that um icewind dale was really great um i mean icewind dale 2 sorry i didn't work heavily on on the for the first icewind dale uh, yeah. but i i you know i liked playing around with uh, some of the locations in there and sort of like you know poking fun of a bit of the cliches that sort of happen with you know some of the rpgs of the time and then you know, I enjoyed Alpha Protocol. Star Wars was a bit hard to ramp up at first because I like, oh, Star Wars, what the hell? And then a week <laughs> later, I'm like, well, wait a minute. I'm kind of enjoying those actually a lot. And then I found out, you know, I, I started getting that whole nostalgia feeling for, well, you know, I remember why I love Star Wars in the first place. I'm like, you know, maybe it felt a little bit more like Empire Strikes Back. Like, that would be kind of cool. And, you know, maybe if uh, people ask more questions about the Force and Jedi philosophy, that'd be, and then I got into it. And I, So yeah. I've liked just about every game I've worked on, but the reasons tend to vary. Mm-hmm. So, for, you know, for some of those games that really turned out uh, to be kind of cool classics later on, like Fallout 2 and, uh, and Planescape Torment... I mean, when when you were actually designing those games, did you did you realize that they were going to be become kind of as as big as they as they were? Because I mean, the the community for those games was, was kind of so devoted to the game. There's still websites devoted to Planescape Torment today. Hey, Rich, just to warn you, I think uh, I, for some reason the audio quality there, I think, was uh, getting scrambled. I'm not sure if there's any if you if you see anything on your end, but I wanted to warn you. Okay. Uh, could you hear what I was saying? Uh, I heard I heard the basic question. I just want to make sure, like if, I, like, if I gave you an answer, it wouldn't get all screwed up, and then you have that right, heart-stopping okay. moment. Yeah, yeah, I have. I haven't noticed anything so so far. It seems to be okay. Okay. Well, yeah. um, so uh, with I got I guess I'll just cite like uh, Planescape and you know Fallout Two as examples. Like at the time, 
like had no idea that they would achieve any sort of cult right. status. Uh, I, the, the feeling at the time was mostly the quote unquote magic came from the fact we got to keep our jobs. <laughs> uh, <laughs> and, and let me, I should probably explain that. So with, with Planscape, like I actually thought I was going to get fired over that game. I'm like, okay, well, you know, localization costs are through the roof. It's a weird game. Like, you know, uh, I, it was, and, you know, QA was like kind of skeptical of it. And, I, and overall, I'm like, oh my God, I don't, this is, this is it. This is the end of my career. I'm done. Um, with Fallout 2, um, uh, that actually was a little bit different because people from other departments would stop by to ask how it was going. And the reason for that was they were afraid they were going to lose their jobs if Fallout 2 didn't come out within a certain period of time. So, like, not only do you have the pressure of trying to finish, you know, the, you know, the, the, the game, but also you're trying to worry about your friends and like making sure that, Hey, you know, if I actually don't do this or, you know, pull this off, like, you know, I'm going to lose all my, you know, friends in, in marketing and the adventure game division strat. Like it, that, that was a lot of pressure too, but that said, okay. So there was the joy of the logistics of keeping your job or, you know, not getting fired, had no idea they would ever sort of achieve any sort of following beyond that. But I think both games have taught me that, it's worthwhile to look at the long picture with a lot of games, like as a Planescape, like, you know, I definitely appreciate the people that have played it and enjoyed it. Uh, and to see it still resonate with people after all these years is, is really heartwarming. And it just reminds me that, you know, what may seem like, you know, temporary terrors or temporary fears about how a game's going could may not, you know, pan out at all in the long run. And you gotta you gotta keep that in mind. Like the the story goes on. It's just it's it's not it's not finished once the game is out. You know, it's 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 still got that chance to resonate even louder in the future, which I which I think is is good. Okay. Uh, so just talking a bit about uh Numenera, because you've done a bit of work on that game. Is your is your part in that kind of finished now? I think you were designing a character, is that right? Um, actually, no, it's not. I'm actually still working on it. Uh, and, and to explain okay. my, my task, so uh, uh, I've done a lot of the uh, the core arc for the uh, the companion that I'm designing uh, for that game, and also uh, I finished uh, the outline for the first uh, graphic novel, and then uh, I'm halfway through the second one, which is uh, very cool. Uh, but uh, no, I still got uh, more stuff on Numenera, and I'm actually really excited about it. I think the the setting is really cool, and I think uh, you know Monty Cook, you know who also was part of Planescape. Like he, yeah. his, his design aesthetic really shows through in that world, and it's just as much fun to de- design for as it was for like D and D Planescape. Yeah. So how do you think that the settings kind of? What's the main similarities between the settings, Planescape and Numenera, and what do you think the main differences are? So, um, for, for people who may not be familiar with Numenera, uh, or, or, or Planescape. So, so Planescape is basically, it, it took every single D&D world and said, oh, they're all connected across the plane. So just about anything you can imagine, like, exists out there if you find the right door and the right key for it. Numenera, uh, feels like, uh, Monty condensed all that into one world. And then a second world and a third, and then he crushed them all together into sort of like this huge chronology. Because the the world you explore in Numenera has gone through so many upheavals, from going like the heights of technology back to like you know to the quote unquote Stone Age, 
that all this residue of all these artifacts and technology are still lying around. And that's sort of the equivalent of magic in that world. Like, you know, certain spell, quote unquote, spell effects might be the, you know, the results of nanites or super, you know, super science that people can't really understand anymore, but they can see the effects of what it is. Yeah. And basically it's allowed uh, designers to basically create a sort of planescape like effect where you, you can literally create just about anything in Numenera and explain it away as being one of those previous, you know, eight worlds that, you know, or those eight cultures that existed or, you know, maybe, you know, it's some, you know, satellite that crashed the planet or, you know, some dimensional rift that opened up. But it allows for a lot of really cool locations uh, to just sort of like brainstorm about. And then you're like, well, I can explain it with, with, with magic slash science and just basically create a, a cool dungeon, you know, for the player. And and I think the the NXile crew has really run with that. Like they, they have that entire like submerged city that's almost like a huge water drop <laughs> in the middle of a desert. Yeah. And and uh you know, they did a great job with, you know, specking out that one location called the Bloom, where basically you, right. you go and decide what basically feels like a giant devouring stomach that keeps, you know, opening apertures here and there. It's like, it's disgusting, but it's cool. Yeah. I'm like, I'm like Numenera allows for that. And so did Planescape. Yeah. So I, I feel like it's a little bit more liberating in terms of design. Like you don't have as many sort of classic bookends hemming you in. And I think that, you know, both, both design teams sort of ran with that. Yeah, yeah. The the uh, I remember the blooms specifically. Actually, um, it it's it it. I'm, I'm not sure if I, I I fully understood what it was, but I think it's it's like a creature that spans across dimensions, and people kind of take advantage of it by sort of traveling along it. But while they're doing so, they also risk being digested. Exactly. That, oh, Rich, you've got it. And it's even better. You said it in a wonderful accent, so it sounds more melodic. <laughs> that's great. No, that no, yeah, that's exactly it. Uh, you know, technology is a definitely a you know a two-edged sword in Numenera. So you know the idea that you sort of, I, I, the the feel that I got from the Bloom was kind of like all the humans and NPCs and all the you know creatures. They were basically like 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 remoras, like on the belly of the Bloom, and the Bloom was just like slowly feeding on them or like taking advantage of them. But the sense that you're inside a much larger creature is definitely there. Yeah. Okay. Um. Just talk about you, you mentioned kind of Kickstarter before, and it's obviously something you've got interest in. Is that something you'd ever touch yourself? Would you ever head up a, a Kickstarter project in the future? Um, I'll probably uh, hold off on an, an answer for that for right now. Um, uh, now. Now I'd sort of sort of turn my focus to uh, to Numenera and sort of get uh, the the rest of the companion work and any additional you know work they would they would want me to do, and then. Um, I also uh, want to finish up uh, the last few chapters of the uh, the Wasteland 2 novel, which I, I loved writing, but man, it grew from a novella to a novel. And let me tell you the big the big drawback of that experience was my first novel writing experience and or sorry, first novella experience. Um, and I made the mistake of making four protagonists because I thought that felt more Wastelandy. And man, that just grew and grew and grew. But I was having so much fun writing it that it was, I was yeah. like, hey, Brian, can I just turn this into a novel? And he's like, well, you don't, <laughs> have, to, don't have to twist my arm. So, <laughs> but I know I, I wanted to, to wrap that up and get the, the help of a, of a, of a good uh, copy editor who has a lot of time to spare. So that should be good. And then um, the last thing I wanted to sort of get off the, 
uh, Q was uh, I saw the uh, this Arcanum playthrough that I'm doing. Uh, I've got all the equipment set up for that, and uh, uh, I got the computer all all set up at home, so I'm all good to go. I think I just have to figure out the logistics and do all the sound checking. Actually, you know, you'll probably have more experience in getting a rig like that all set up, so it's not annoying to your audience. But I, I think I'm gonna have to make quite a few mistakes while I'm I'm going through it. But yeah, no, everything else is pretty much uh, wrapped up as far as uh, Kickstarters go. The uh, yep. I finished. Um, the Eternity novella, I think, uh, three or four weeks ago. Uh, I haven't yeah. got any feedback yet, but uh, if when I do, I'm happy to do any revisions to that. But yeah, no, the, that's pretty much on the plate. And then after that, um, there are plenty of stuff out there and a lot of exciting uh, potential for the future. I, I'm a little bit staggered by it all. Okay. So so with the Arcanum playthrough, you mean you're doing a Let's Play, are you? Or? Yes, and I'm terrible at it. Oh. <laughs> the undoubtedly the worst Arcanum player in the world, but I'm having fun while doing it. Um, and uh, it also reminds me of certain RPG conventions uh, from that era that may both translate uh, into games we're working on now, especially with the resurgence of the, the isometric, and then maybe other you know conventions that were present at that time that maybe are good that they were you know sort of left by the wayside and I'm not, I'm not talking solely about Arcanum but you know there's a lot of older RPG elements that I don't think translate quite as well into the modern sensibility. Yeah. Okay, so so um, when we started getting this whole kind of reinvigoration of uh, isometric RPGs that we've that we've now we're now sort of living uh, thanks to Kickstarter and things like that, uh, you know how did obviously that must have been kind of good news for you they they. The kind of games, but they're, well, they're one of the kind of games that you quite like to make. Uh, where do you think it's kind of going? Are we just going to get kind of a brief reinvigoration? Do you think, or will there be some kind of future for this? And will the games have to change in some way to keep people interested? How's it going to How's it going to go? Do you think? Well, I, I think each game should have um, a certain ambience or feel about it that sets it apart or, or new directions to explore. And I, and I think Wasteland and uh, Wasteland Two and uh, Tides of Numenera. You know, I, I think they definitely set a different tone, and because of the nature of their worlds, they were allowed to explore different different system mechanics, which I think is good. Uh, I think that if anything, Kickstarter proved that there's a large viable market for isometric RPGs like that. Like as long as yeah. you know, you know, you, you can reach out to that community. Like they're absolutely willing to support you above and because it's it's now a proven model. Like you know, people, it's, you know, the the fans are out there. Like it's not it's not a question anymore. They're out there. Uh, and I, my thought is just that as, as they're being developed, I think, uh, you know, people will, you know, learn more of the, you know, intricacies of Unity or the, the engine have, uh, you know, content that they can specify according to the genre, like if they're doing an espionage game or if they're doing, you know, a, a Planescape style game. All those things allow you to explore different, you know, system mechanics. So I think there'll still be an evolution in terms of how that RPG experience comes about. But, it doesn't always have to be on, you know, every console or, you know, to, 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 to reach the audience anymore. It's okay to, to sort of scale back and go, you know what, just the PC is fine for now. Um, and now let's just, you know, focus on making a good RPG. And then once that's out there, then we'll just keep, you know, iterating on it and iterating on it. And, you know, in nine years or ten, like, who knows what that RPG will be like. But we'll have learned a lot of tricks of the trade and 
getting getting through those first few hurdles of a game, I think, allows you to just keep creating consistently better and better content. I think, like for example, the the, the Baldur's Gate series proved that. Um, we certainly learned a lot from Bioware back at Black Isle. We were making you know the Infinity Engine games and creating content for those games just got easier and easier. And then once a lot of logistical difficulties went away. We're like, oh, we know how to solve that now. Or like, we've oh, we got a pipeline for that. Suddenly that freed up our minds to create just more interesting content. And I, I think that we'll probably see the same pattern going on with, uh, with, with the isometric RPGs uh, to date. Right, okay. So you think with the, with the kind of, um, what would be the right word, word the sort of, uh, with the, the engine type, Things getting easier to do, the kind of uh, the back, I suppose the, the the actual game, the way the game functions, and the mechanics and all that kind of stuff. With them, with that kind of stuff getting easier, with I suppose things like Unity and, and whatnot, then you think it actually frees up um, creators to kind of make more, to spend more time focusing on the kind of creative part of the game. Yes, and also another advantage I think that occurs is uh, with Unity and especially Kickstarter projects. Um, there's a potential to share like a lot of technology or assets mm-hmm. or things that you've discovered or your own AI scripting. So it's like all that stuff yeah. was a little bit harder to get before. Uh, so like, so to, to cite an example, like when we were working on uh, Neverwinter Nights 2 and, you know, even again with Fallout New Vegas, uh, being able to, uh, to see what the, the mod community had come up with, which, you know, in, in several cases was infinitely better than, you know, what we could have pulled off in the same time frame. Or even if we'd had the time, we wouldn't have thought to do half the things they did or even a quarter of the, it's, it's just amazing the amount of creativity out there. But once you have access to assets and apps and functions like that and you can pull those into your game, like, that may that just basically gives you more and more building blocks for the game's quality bars to rise higher and higher. Uh huh. So, what's your favorite part of um, of kind of designing the game? Like the start, the middle, when things are finishing up, or writing dialogues. What do you kind of enjoy doing most? Wow, that's tough. Uh, so I. <laughs> I, and I, I don't, I don't mean to give the uh, the same answer as uh, the you know what favorite game have I worked on, but every stage of that process has a level of enjoyment about it. Like there's the there's the blue sky of pre-production. We're like, oh, you know what's you know what what sort of what sort of reference like what sort of theme are we tying in like you know what what cool locales could we do like you know what's the what's the opening moment of the game like all that stuff that you're kind of just kicking around like you know, the potential is just, you know, uh, limitless. You're like, oh, wow. So you get really excited about that. You bandy around a lot of ideas. There's a lot of sounding board, back and forth talks. And that's very exciting. When you get into production, uh, just being able to nail down, like, you know, shape areas, like actually lay out, like, logistics for quests, uh, start gray boxing those, seeing those, how those play out. That's really satisfying. Um, and then when you start seeing the areas getting more and more art added to them, so they feel more real, like, then almost every day or every week, like you get a new thrill to see your area, your area kind of growing and growing and your characters, you know, as they get voice acted or they get, uh, you know, tested, like seeing those guys get polished and refined is really pleasant. And then when you get into uh, the, uh, the end of production and you're going through the, uh, the quality assurance process, being able to fix bugs 
like is also satisfying so you feel like, you know, okay, well, I fixed that problem today. And I can point the spreadsheet that says how many problems I fixed that day. <laughs> and then you go hunting for more problems. And like it and even that's, you know, satisfying. You feel like you're going hunting, which is which is, you know, a blast. And then you can also incorporate those lessons into things you shouldn't do in the next game or find solutions that you can incorporate in the next game so those those bugs don't don't pop up again with uh, hopefully. Um the one weird thing is uh, sometimes, like I get, um, well, I, I, I get afraid that I sort of under undermine my profession. But I, I actually do have a really hard time uh, writing dialogue. Uh, I mean, I, I I like to do it once I get into it, but when I start, I get so scared about the character, and it usually requires that you know. Like there can't be any like outside distractions or anyone walking by because I feel like they're judging me <laughs> okay. as, as I'm trying to write this guy. And, and the way I write is uh, I can sort of hear the character's voice in my head. But but if somebody's there with me, like suddenly that voice gets really quiet. So sometimes that's a bit of a challenge. And also I feel like I'm just going to fuck up the dialogue. So then I'm like, OK, well, I have this image for how I'd like it to be. But I know once I put the words to the paper it's probably not going to be as good as I imagine. Um, and, and occasionally I surprise myself, but usually it's never quite, you know, the, the blue sky thrill that I imagine the first place. So, so dialogue's a bit rough area design. However, I love like, I'm like, okay, well I love sketching out an area, figuring out where the loot is, figuring out the gameplay experience of going from point A to B or A to C or A to D and, and, and trying to imagine what the player would go through. Uh, when you're laying out that area, because it reminds me of my old, my old game master days. So that that's kind of a thrill to do too. But um, yeah, every part of the process has something different that I love about it. Um, so it, uh, it's it's kind of hard to nail down. Okay. Um, so just talk about Alpha Protocol for a moment, because we we were sort of talking about bugs, and that was a game which it seemed to have a lot of potential and a lot of uh, kind of great ideas, but um, it did receive a lot of criticism on the launch. Um, with problems with the combat and, and bugs and whatnot, uh, what 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 do you think happened there? Like, what why why did that kind of happen? Whereas you know, pre, if you look at kind of most of the other games you've worked on, they they, they were very well received at launch. Um, so I, I think there were there were a, a few issues there, and, and this is all stuff that I've mentioned before. So uh, yeah, I, I may actually be requoting stuff. So just uh, uh, as a heads up. So uh, there were a few problems there. The uh, one was um, uh, we had a hierarchy uh, for design that I don't think allowed us to create uh, content the most efficiently nor in the, in the best manner. What I mean by that is it's, it's very hard to design a level um, and, and sort of create a backdrop for the experience in arena fights when you don't have all the systems uh, complete or if the systems are, are being iterated on. And there, were, there was a lot of system iteration uh, on Alpha Protocol throughout, which affected all the level design. So that, that was one issue as well. And, then, and again, also some mechanics were added a little bit late, so therefore the levels didn't feel like they, they really right. gave a home to some of those mechanics. Um, and I, I, and to be clear, like I, there was uh, a lot of challenges with it, and it's that I I don't for a second, uh, you know, I'm not I'm not uh, speaking down at any of the system design, you know, uh, at the studio that that wasn't it. It was it's just that the logistics of the project just kept getting, getting shuffled around at various points, so right. it's really hard to keep up with all that. So there was so there was that. Um, also, uh, I think. Uh, 
we were pretty new to that genre. Um, yeah. I think, you know, obviously we've done a lot of role-playing games before, like, well, hey, we have character story, like, obviously we have, a, we have you know, a, a resume for that. But when it came to a lot of the new mechanics and alpha protocol, a lot of that stuff was uncharted territory for us. So we're like, uh, so we, we may, I think, made a lot of, you know, what would be considered like newbie errors when it comes to elements like that. So then I think that also provided a challenge. Yep. Um, also, I think that, and I, I've spoken about this before, but I think also for a while there wasn't um, a clear a clear vision holder for the project, which caused problems, obviously. Um, and also I think that a number of people on the team who are very smart people all had different ideas of where it should go. I think it was only halfway through that uh, the pro you know a, a, a project writer came in. He's like, "Here's how it's going to be. Here's the vision." Here's the parameters. Here's what we're looking at. Here's how we're going to get there. And that got everyone back on track. And while, you know, Alpha Protocol's reception may have not been the best, uh, it certainly uh, improved from that from that point onwards. And we definitely felt like we were actually working towards a goal and working, you know, towards an end product. And there's, there's stuff that I'm proud about with the game. Like, uh, you know, I, I really liked um, the uh, the dialogue system that uh, that Brian Matsoda designed, and I, I believe that uh, one of our programmers, Dan Spitzley, uh, uh, implemented. But I, I thought that was a really innovative mechanic. I was pretty scared of it. I wasn't sure if people would like it, but they they really did. It definitely fit the espionage genre. But like, on all, on all our focus tests, people thought that you know the the dialogue was about as stressful as being in a combat situation, which was great. Yeah. We're like, okay, well, oh, good. Now you do feel like you're on 24. Okay, that's that's perfect. Right, right. That's exactly what we want. Yeah. Um, so that you know that worked out really well. I I liked I liked the branching narrative. I thought we gave the player a lot of options. I wish it you know hadn't been quite so special case about that stuff because it was basically a huge choose your own adventure. But um, right. you know I'm still proud that we gave the player you know all those RPG options. But yeah, there's a lot to be, there's a lot to be proud of. It certainly had its challenges. I think if we had, if we had done a sequel to that game, like it would have been. How I mentioned with like game logistics before, where you're like, okay, well, we we figured out like all the basics there for things like we shouldn't do or should do, or here's how to fix this. We've got the you know basic system mechanics down. Now we can just focus on creating smoother, better content, and that was kind of the hope with the the sequel. Yeah. So I mean, the the, the it, it, interestingly enough, the the first thing you kind of talked about there, uh, it was almost like what we were saying before. Whereas um, the, if you kind of have this back end that's already in place then it can kind of free people up to concentrate more on the creative direction, whereas um, it sounds like with Alpha Protocol, that was being iterated all the time and being developed alongside the kind of creative things like level design and whatnot, and that caused problems. That, that, that's a good way to put it. The, uh, I, my, my personal philosophy on how design should work, um, and this is just my two cents, is that uh, the, of the three different designer types, there's like, if I were to break it down generally, there's there's system uh, area design uh, and narrative, um, and I, I won't go into interface design, even though it's really important. But uh, we'll yeah. just deal with those first three. But generally, system mechanics should always take the top shelf because because a player needs to be having fun from moment to moment. And for example, if if it doesn't feel fun in a Mario game to jump, then you've got a problem because Mario does that all the time. Also, if you don't know how high Mario jumps or how far he jumps. I don't know how you would ever create a proper level for a Mario game. So, so basically, systems should take the top shelf, and then uh, area design sort of creates the stage and the backdrop for the system mechanics to play out in a satisfying manner. Uh, and then the narrative guys come in and go, okay, well, we give context to all this. Like, ultimately, the moment-to-moment is fun. The backdrop is fun. 
Now let's make a reason for all these situations. And sometimes I can get shuffled around, but uh, that hierarchy is what I try and uh, adhere to and sort of follow whenever whenever I'm working on a game. Uh-huh. Okay, Chris. Um, so, I mean, apart from the ties of Numenera, do you have anything else lined up that you can talk about? Uh, nothing that I can talk about right now. Uh, I will right. say that uh, the the work on Numenera, I, I'm I'm really enjoying it. Uh, there's there's still a lot uh, of stuff to do, so I'm kind of looking forward to getting my hands uh, back in there. Uh, I've just certainly enjoyed working on the uh, the graphic novels, and I really enjoy writing the character that uh, is going to be in the game. I think. Uh, in many respects, but, he's very Planescape-y, so I think I'm looking forward to that. I, and also, I'm working with a lot of the guys that um, I worked with on Mask of the Betrayer and also on the original Planescape. So being able to work with all those guys, again, has been a huge joy. But uh, the future beyond that, uh, there's, I guess, a, there's a lot of gleams in people's eyes for these really cool ideas they would like to bring to the game arena, and those ideas are pretty awesome. So I'm kind of looking forward to seeing where that goes and hopefully being a part of that. But uh, we'll see, and hopefully I can talk about it in the future. Okay, so we're we're definitely going to see more games from you, basically. It's just a question of when. Uh, I I don't think I could ever stop being a game designer. (laughs) I think that's that's just where my brain is going to be at until uh, I'm in the coffin. Okay. Okay, Chris, well, um, unless you've got anything you particularly want to mention, then that's that's pretty much all my questions. Well, Rich, well, thanks. I I hope... uh, I hope uh, I hope it all work. I uh, hope the, the recording all works out. And uh, you know, I probably, I really appreciate you sending <laughs> sending the questions in advance. That gives me a little bit more time to think about them and and make some more informed answers. Because uh, yeah, sometimes, like when I when I when I spit balls, it's not very interesting.